Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Amanda J. Morris. She's a professor and associate chair of the Department of Chemistry at Virginia Tech. And we're going to talk about uh, solar energy. So, Amanda, thanks for coming. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me about uh, your research. What what area of solar do you focus on? The cost, the efficiency, the chemistry of it? Uh, what do you work on? So we do a little bit on cost. Uh, probably about 10% of my lab works on trying to make solar energy cheaper. And then the remaining 90% of my lab works on methods to store solar energy, which a lot of people don't realize, but that's actually one of the biggest limiting factors to solar energy. Is that what they call solar batteries or is it? Solar storage is just an overarching term that includes solar batteries. Uh, Solar storage would be an overarching term that would include solar batteries. What I'm actually talking about is solar fuel generation. So basically creating chemical equivalent to like ethanol in, in gas now, but using the sun and carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So you'd use the solar energy to what? Excite carbon dioxide to allow it to you know, turn into a hydrocarbon form or allow it to bond with other substances? So what would happen? So we actually take inspiration for this process from um, plants that already do this. So plants do this in a process called photosynthesis. So if we dove deep into a plant, what it's doing is it's taking sunlight and water and carbon dioxide, and it converts those things into sugar and oxygen, right, which we breathe. So what I want to do is that artificially. And so what we do is we use uh, sunlight to promote the energy of electrons, which would be in the plant, um, and then use those electrons to actually reduce carbon dioxide. Now, nature makes sugar. I'm not saying that we're going to have sugar. I mean, I'm not going to shovel sugar into my car, right? Um, But what I want to do is just play and manipulate that process to make CO2 into something like ethanol which we can actually envision putting in our car and then driving down the street. Well, what's interesting is my guess is that, you know, plants don't use the entire spectrum of the sunlight that hits them, but a science could possibly with a solar cell, if you captured a lot more of the spectrum and the different energy photons, maybe you'd make ethanol plus some other substances and, you know, therefore you'd raise the efficiency of what you're taking in. Yeah, we definitely can do better with uh, solar harvesting. You're, you're absolutely right there. Um, the other thing that we can do really well um, as chemists is to make materials that are more stable. So it turns out that the protein in plants that actually does this falls apart all the time. Um, and so the protein spends a lot of energy just rebuilding components of the protein. And I can't really do that as a chemist. I can't hand you you know, a solar fuel generating machine and have it fall apart in 30 minutes and then say, I'll be back to replace that, right? That doesn't work. So what we can do is we can make materials that are much more stable um, and would last a very long time and therefore be economically viable. Solar cells, solar panels, like what's some of the chemistry involved? How do they work and how's your method different? Okay. So solar panels right now use silicon 
solar cells. So that's why they're black, because silicon is black. Um, and what they're essentially doing is, well, silicon is a semiconductor. What's happening currently is there's a direct sunlight to electricity conversion, but you're taking it along a chemical process instead. Right. So in a current solar cell, when you excite the silicon, you basically directly convert that solar energy into an electron and where the electron was, which in our field we call a hole. And so that electron and the positively charged hole enter a circuit and create electricity. I don't want to take that electron and hole and put them through a wire to create electricity. I want to take that electron and put it on a carbon dioxide molecule And I want to take that hole and put it on a water molecule. And then if I do that four times on the water side and eight times on the electron side, I can give you methane and oxygen. Okay. I thought a hole is just the absence of an electron. So how could you use, so I guess an electron would. um, An electron would come from water and fill the hole. Okay. So so you're oxidizing water to allow it to change. Okay. Exactly. And reducing was the other term. Okay. Yep. So you're oxidizing water by four electrons to produce oxygen and actually four protons. And then you would actually use those four protons over on the reductive side and you'd reduce CO2 uh, to methane, right? So are there two bites of the apple here? Like, um, could you use the, it sounds like a battery is being created, you know, a chemical battery, but then also your end products are useful, you know, methane turned into ethanol or maybe kept as methane and then burned, you know, for energy. So can you get it both or only one? Um, So this would be because we need the sun. It's not like a, so a battery is a spontaneous process, right? When we uh, unplug our phone, it starts generating energy to power the device, right? So electrons are flowing spontaneously through that battery from the anode to the cathode. Um, In our system, we can't do that spontaneously because the reduction of CO2 requires a lot of energy. And so that's why we actually use the sun uh, to give the extra energy to the electrons to actually enable that reduction event. So what we're doing is actually kind of like a battery in reverse. Um, So it's like when we plug it into the wall and run the battery backwards to recharge it. It's kind of like what we're, that's what we're doing in, in when we're talking about artificial photosynthesis. So could this be used to um, recharge batteries? You know, maybe not to, uh, you know, obviously to act as a battery, but to recharge them. Could that be a side use of this? Um, I mean, yeah. So if you had this, the methane, I mean, it'd be exactly the same thing. We'd burn the methane and you could get energy out of that to recharge, to, to charge your, your battery. Oh, but could you use the sunlight directly to charge up a battery if it was the right kind? Oh, sure. But it would make much more sense to just uh, use a straight solar cell in that sense and just turn it straight into electricity and then run the electricity into your phone. Oh, or I guess if you wanted to use it at night or away from the direct source of the solar, then you would make a, I guess, a solar charged battery that can be discharged later. Correct. Right. So, So the process that I'm talking about is actually an alternative to that because you know, batteries are great, and I and it's hard for us to to imagine that batteries are actually very low in power density um, because our phones do so much, right? So our phones are very tiny, and they have this battery in them, and the battery must be so powerful. But to actually have a battery that stores the energy that the sun gives us in a day, we would have to have an incredibly large battery. One of the really good things uh, that your listeners could go and look at is like the size of the whole house batteries. 
that Elon Musk's company are making now, right? They mm-hmm. basically take up almost like a whole room. Um, and that's because that's the size of battery you would need to store all that energy. And so it turns out that chemical fuels that we think about, so like gasoline, those are much higher in energy density, which is why we can fill up our car with gasoline and drive a long, long distance. But when you think about electric powered vehicles, they have a lot of batteries in them and they can't go that far. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, because the weight, you know, and uh, yeah, I understand the right. low power density and the weight, I right. guess, all combined to suck the life out of uh, using batteries for that purpose. So this is an alternative to that. So can we instead use solar energy to generate a chemical fuel that then can actually be used so that we can drive our cars as we do now and have the same distance that we have now and refuel in the same way that we think about refueling our cars now, right? So all the infrastructure is there to kind of do this, but can we do it in a way that is actually carbon neutral and won't impact uh, climate change? So the first product, the first useful product created is methane? Um, so, uh, the products that, that we make are our step to methane. Um, so, uh, there are some catalysts that can actually make methane. So copper, um, is a really good catalyst to make methane, but a, a lot of what we have doesn't do that right now. What we have is, uh, catalysts that make mixtures of carbon monoxide and hydrogen. And if you make a mixture of carbon monoxide and hydrogen, you can then feed that into like a Fisher Tropes plant and make any carbon-based fuel you would like. Yeah, this sounds like it would be really nice to have on the, uh, the outlet of high CO2 producing, you know, industry. So you're not only doing carbon capture or CO2 capture, but you're actually using the sun's energy at that point too, to turn it back into useful uh, reactants. Yeah, that's absolutely where we would want to use this. And it makes the most sense there because also for an investment for the company, uh, that is actually burning the gas, they could actually be turning what is now a waste stream into a value-added product that they could sell. That's really cool. I wonder how much they could offset if you've done like theoretical calculations on uh, you know, a power plant, how much percentage-wise they could offset of their energy use. So uh, overall, using conversion to basically every product we can think of to turn CO2 into, we can get to about 17% of our current CO2 we could recycle. Um, that's that's pretty might, significant, yeah. Yeah, it's significant, but some people may say it's too low. Why Why is it only 17%? And the problem is, because is if you make too much of any chemical, you make the chemical worthless. Does that kind of make sense? What do you right? mean? So like, it's, what, why? It's the it idea would, uh, of supply and demand. form something else? No, I, I mean, literally for the company to sell it, supply and demand, there's a demand for a specific chemical, right? We can make so much of it. And if you make too much for one area, your price drops so much so that then your economic benefit is too low. But is there a lot of equipment needed to take the, uh, you know, the initial materials that you're creating from the sunlight and the CO2 and turn it into useful fuel? Like, why not um, do all this on site? You know, I have a factory, mm-hmm. I have like all these smokestacks producing CO2, and I do the capture right there, the mm-hmm. conversion right there, and I take it all the way back to useful fuel, and then I burn that. So I keep it all in the, you know, without leaving the the plant area, it all stays there. So you're talking like a closed loop energy plant, right? I'm, I'm guessing it's a lot harder, but it would it would act as kind of like a, you know, be a nice recapture of uh, the energy expended. Yeah, the way that I went to think about it is, you know, right now, uh, a lot of people are trying to recover helium because it's an expensive chemical. And so if we can capture some of it when we use some, then it actually makes sense. I think the issue is right now, methane is so cheap 
that right we're not at an economic benefit to remake methane. Okay. Yeah, the the things that we would actually want to turn it into, which is what why I commented if we can think about anything that we can turn CO2 into, right now what we can turn CO in, CO2 into are lots of things. We can turn them into polymers. We can turn uh, CO2 into solvents, right? So there's lots of different things that we can do. And if you split it up, then you can take up 17% of what a plant offtakes. Right now, the cost would be too high to just regenerate uh, methane again, because methane right now is very, very cheap from the ground. I see, but in the future of the economics change, then we probably would see a need for something like this, because that would be, it would be workable. Yes. Um, and that's really what we what we're working on as chemists. I always like to say that uh, chemists work on the technology that's going to be, you know, on out there in the world, uh, you know, 20 to 50 years from now, right? Engineers are working kind of on the things that are, you know, two to three years away. Um, and so um, we really are in the future technology area, but we know that we can get there if we just develop the right materials. So, um, you know, let's talk about the efficiency. So why, you know, again, I'm not complaining by any means, but why 17%? What are some of the major factors that knock the efficiency down to that level? Well, the 17% is the amount of CO2 that we can recover. Um, in terms of efficiency, um, where we're at for solar fuel generation, uh, the most efficient system um, is around 19%, but it's made with very, very expensive materials. So we're talking about very specialized uh, semiconductors that require very uh, lengthy synthetic procedures. Um, so 19% is pretty good. Um, the highest efficiency solar cell that can be made ever is 32%. So 19% doesn't seem that far off from that. However, the cost of that 19% cell is just way too high. And so what we need to do is use cheaper materials. And that's really where the bottleneck is, is that, you know, the really expensive materials work really well. But when we start to go to cheaper materials, we start losing on efficiency. I thought the theoretical limit was like 23%. For some reason, that number jumps out at me, but... If it's 32%, great. That's better. Yeah, it's 32%. It's called the Shockley-Quizar limit. There are well, I think ways I'm to... thinking of the Carnot limit for an engine. You know, gotcha. Engine. Okay. Yeah. So a solar cell is different. It's a theoretical limit is based on the, the area of the solar spectrum it can absorb. And so the Shockley-Quizar limit assumes that you can absorb everything silicon does, which is 1,100 nanometers and everything higher in energy. It also assumes that you can only get one electron in your circuit for every photon that hits the cell. So, um, and then the other thing it assumes is that you don't store extra energy. So it turns out that if you promote an electron with an 1100 nanometer photon, it has lower energy than if you excite the electron with a 300 nanometer photon. But in the solar cell, you don't actually collect that extra energy. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes that extra energy is lost as heat. And so with those three kind of fundamental principles in line, Shockley and Quasar uh, calculated the limit of a, of a silicon solar cell to be 32%. Okay, so you know, what are some of your challenges right now? Like how far along are you in creating this, uh, this system? There's tons of challenges. You know, I, I think we've had uh, some really good successes in the past uh, few years. So like I mentioned, in that 19% efficiency system was just demonstrated um, in 2019. So, you know, that's a breakthrough in itself. Being able to operate at that efficiency, even with exorbitant cost, is still a really good proof of concept. But for us, in my lab, what we're trying to do is develop cheaper materials, right? So 
what are the things that we're looking at? Well, how do we harness the sun better? How do we harness the sun more like plants? Uh, if you think about a plant, it's green because it has these chlorophyll in it that are responsible for harnessing solar energy. Um, so in my lab, what we're trying to do is kind of take lessons from plants in how they arrange and kind of the chemical environment of these uh, chlorophyll. And can we mimic that artificially so that we can get very efficient solar harvesting? And so that's, that's one component of what we're looking for. The other main thing that's the big bottleneck, if I were to say this is the thing that everybody should be working on, uh, it's water oxidation. So we talked about how that's the other half. So you got to get electrons from somewhere. So to reduce carbon dioxide, I need to get the electrons from water. And water oxidation is just incredibly difficult. The component that I mentioned that falls, well, it's a four electron process. So that means I need to rip four electrons uh, out of water. That's a thermodynamic challenge. Uh, so, you know, just looking at the thermodynamic potential for that, it takes 1.23 volts to just do that process. So that's energy intensive in itself. And then also the ability to actually have those electrons go into some material is complicated because every electron you put in, the next electron is harder and harder. Well, that's not actually true. Oh, as you oxidize it, each successive electron requires more energy to oxidize it further. That's not actually true. Oh, okay. More electronegative, you know. Those. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it's because some intermediates are easier to oxidize. Some are harder. It depends. I think the issue is stabilizing everything, right? When you think about oxidizing water, you're creating reactive oxygen species, which can then tear up everything that you're making, right? Um, and so, say, uh, so you need to make something that's incredibly stable, but then that's fine. You can make things that are stable, but then do they have the right geometries and environments to actually drive the chemistry? And that's really where we're struggling is that we have some things that are basically rocks, we use oxides, right? They're rocks. I mean, so they're going to be incredibly stable. But if you use cheap rocks, so the cheapest rock I can think of is rust, um, right? It's not very good at oxidizing water because it doesn't have the good environment to do that. It doesn't have the right active sites to drive that chemistry. The rocks that do work are like ruthenium oxide and iridium oxide. Those are very, very, very expensive. So we're back to this issue of the expensive things work well because they have the right environment and they're stable, but we need to, we need to come up with something to lower the cost. How efficient are plants? As I'm sure people have calculated their efficiency, right? Yeah, really bad. Three to 6%. And 6% is like genetically engineered plants. So yeah. even with that low efficiency, um, what are, what are the benefits? Like what's so good about how plants do the conversion? What I get, well, they're obviously using like super cheap materials. Correct. You now their own plant so that's the so big thing, right? That No, that's the big thing. It's very, very cheap materials, right? And so that's where we need to take the lesson from them is to figure out how we can mimic their cheap materials, but make them stable enough and have the right environment to, to do the chemistry. Although well, I want a caveat because nature isn't stable. And that's the biggest thing. I mentioned that it falls apart once every uh, 30 minutes. And so the issue is that nature had eons to evolve the system it's only three to 6% efficient and it falls apart a lot. And so uh, now that gives you an idea if nature evolved for eons and went, okay, this is the best we can do three to 6% and falling apart all the time, but we'll deal with it. That's the big challenge that chemists have. Now we have to do better than the evolutionary process. Yeah. But the plants aren't decaying. I mean, they're rebuilding their proteins, like you said. So you might have to have a process like that where, so first of all, it sounds like a seesaw. 
higher efficiency, more expensive materials, lower efficiency, cheaper materials. So the plants on the other end of the seesaw, the low efficiency end, but materials are super cheap. Mm-hmm. But it requires this, uh, you know, again, rebuilding of the, uh, of the materials needed to do the job. Mm-hmm. So if you consider both of those, those factors, is that doable in an yeah, industrial so, process? Yeah. So there's a whole group of, of chemists who are working on trying to make self-healing materials. Uh, so materials that are made out of these cheap components um, and, yeah, fall apart just like nature but just like nature are able to be rebuilt during the process. And so a really good example of that are the cobalt oxides, which came out of, at the time, MIT and Dan Nocera's group. He's at Harvard now. Um, But his cobalt oxide films, they did fall apart, but they were rebuilt during the chemistry. So then, even though he had, you know, at any one time, an unstable system, overall, the system was stable. Um, and so we're trying to to play with more uh, kind of games in, in that way. I don't know. Are you able to cause cells to create the proteins needed? You know, bacteria or algae or whatever it is, or, you know, can you use biology to create the constituents needed to run this reaction and emulate what a plant does? And then maybe you can, on demand, have enough, enough of the uh, the right proteins, for instance, to run this reaction or the right base materials. Yeah. I mean, there definitely are people doing that. Um, That's like biosolar fuels. Um, There are algae that um, will convert uh, CO2 to methane under the right conditions. And so there are bunches, there there are people who are considering kind of algal farms, solar algal farms, where they build uh, kind of clear tubes that are lined with these algae that then basically convert uh, CO2 to methane as they go. And and you can definitely uh, do that process. Of course, you're still then limited by the efficiency of that through the plant, which is around three to 6%. Is there any way to cascade sunlight so it goes through a solar panel or some energy capture device that's translucent, and then the remainder of the solar energy can now continue down to the next layer and the next layer? Is that able to be done? And if that, if you had a system like that, would that solve any of the problems? So it's really interesting. That's actually how nature works because photosynthesis actually requires two photons of light to, to drive the chemistry. You need that much energy added to the electron. And nature matches the solar energy photons that excite it. So one side takes the red photons and then transmits the blue photons and the second piece picks up those leftover blue photons. So nature does that in part um, and we can definitely do that with kind of artificial materials, so semiconductors and things like that. We tend to call that an energy transfer cascade, so harnessing those solar photons and kind of directing them down a a pathway by just what you're saying is that one picks up the red photons, one picks up the green, one picks up the blue. Um, and so we can definitely build uh, those types of devices to get us better solar harvesting. Have, have yeah, we been able to build all of that into a complete artificial photosynthetic device where we're then also generating fuel? No, we've kind of looked at those pieces separately. So the solar har- harvesting and kind of this idea that you're saying about uh, matching the solar photons to kind of make sure that you're absorbing across the whole spectrum. We've shown that. Um, and then we've also done uh, solar fuel generation, but we haven't married those two pieces together. Yeah. Also with the traditional solar, I thought the, um, you know, the color temperature of the light changes dramatically from like early morning light to noon to mid afternoon to, you know, to dusk. So, I mean, traditional solar doesn't even take advantage of that. Like what happens to the efficiency when you're getting, you know, red photons in the morning and then you're getting more blue ones later on, for instance. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, that's a potential uh, thing that we could think about, but it's, it's much more problematic that when the sun is out, we are not using energy. So if you actually look at, at human consumption of energy, it's greatest in the morning and in the evening. And when the sun is out is actually midday. Um, and so this is this issue with a whole bunch of solar panels on uh, the current electric grid is that around, you know, two o'clock, they're generating a ton of energy, right? And they're dumping it onto the grid and the grid doesn't have anywhere to put it. Um, And so that's what causes rolling blackouts and things like this. And so that mismatch of when we as humans need energy and when solar cells can actually capture the energy is a big problem. And, And that's really why we're looking at the storage alternatives like hooking up solar farms to batteries and then storing the energy in large battery farms or taking that solar energy and dumping it into chemical fuels, which we can store in a tank and then burn later in a conventional manner. Yeah, interesting. It's a difficult puzzle. What part of this is you're focused on the cheaper materials part or what, what's like your top focus in this area? Yeah, we're, we're focused on, on the cheaper materials part, um, but also on the component of trying to do water oxidation at all. So can we make a catalyst that, well, I guess it's still cheaper materials, but but also increase the efficiency of the materials that we have now. And then also on the CO2 reduction side, selectivity. So one of the biggest issues with um, industrial processes is you typically only want to make one product because separation of products is very complicated. And so when we're developing a catalyst to, to drive this reaction, we want it to be very selective to the product that we're after. So if we want it to make methane, we want it to make only methane. Or if we want it to make ethanol, we want it to make only ethanol. Um, And we don't have catalysts that do that right now. As I mentioned, copper is the best catalyst that we have that makes methane, but it also makes 32 other things. Um, And so as uh, somebody who's trying to build a plant and thinking about separating 32 different things uh, from each other, uh, that's, you know, a nightmare. Um, And so what we need to do is to make things that selectively would target specific products that perhaps someone would want, you know, so if we could make uh, formic acid selectively, if we could make ethylene glycol selectively, that's what we're after. And so we also work on that. Probably as with everything, there's going to be all kinds of trade-offs. Are you seeing what the trade-offs are yet? Uh, I I mean, the biggest issues you mean in terms of of like um economic well, i'm guessing i'm guessing probably what will happen is there might be some really cheap you know substrates you can use but they create a lot more byproducts and then you know more expensive ones probably are more selective and you know and i just have the feeling that there's like trade-offs all over the place so yeah. i don't know if it's true hopefully not but like what are some of those things that you've been running into yeah um so i think Right now, what we've, the biggest trade-off is the one that we've kind of hit on a bunch of times, which is that to make things that are highly efficient and highly selective, it tends to be very expensive. And so we can go to things that are cheaper, but we take a huge hit typically on efficiency. And so we're not at a point yet where we can take those cheap materials and at the efficiency they're operating at be competitive. Uh, so, you know, I think that's the first trade-off that we have to worry about. And then we'll worry about making a selective uh, catalyst after that. Although, uh, you know, if there was a way to make copper selective, then you would win because copper in general is very cheap. So there are people who are saying, well, copper already works. We just need to make it selective. So for them, that's the most important trade-off is how do we make it selective? Yeah, and I guess there's different approaches to the goal. So you'd have to identify which path is more likely for you. 
yeah and see what uh, other paths people are doing right uh you know there's there's a lot of different uh materials we can think about as chemists to drive all of this reactivity um we can use solid state materials so i've mentioned copper right that's a material you can hold in your hand you know what copper looks like um we can also use molecules like nature does right they use chlorophyll um and so we could use molecules what i try and do is actually marry those two so i tried to turn molecules into material scaffolds which gives me the benefits of each of those fields. Molecules tend to be more selective than materials, but materials are more robust than molecules. Um, So I'm trying to play in this kind of new area that kind of fits in between those two, uh, hopefully to find something that balances these trade-offs we've been talking about. So what do you expect is going to happen in the next year or two in your research? Or do you feel like you're a long way off or there's uh, you're getting close to some breakthroughs? So I think that the field is getting close to some breakthroughs. Um, And I think uh, with the recent investments in solar fuels, so the Department of Energy just funded two large solar fuels hubs. And I think that the the field of artificial photosynthesis in general um, has been very collaborative, right? So um, one person will work on, on one little tiny component and that will build into the next component and will bring all that together to really make the efficient device. And so I think these two solar fuel hubs will enable that kind of bringing together of ideas. And with that, I think that realization of major breakthroughs is is around the corner. Um, In my research uh, specifically, I think the the biggest breakthrough that we're going to have is by using this, this kind of new material that I'm talking about, that's like a molecular material, which is very odd, but that's what it is. We're going to be able to create product at much faster rates than we could in either of the individual material field or molecular field could previously. And that might enable uh, some of those uh, catalysts that aren't very good um, to actually be brought off the shelf and bring them back to being competitive. Um, And so uh, we've shown that we can uh, kind of take a bad catalyst and make it a hundred times better. And I think we're on the route to making it a thousand times better. And then can we actually beat this trade-off where we're using something that's cheap and was inefficient on its own, but when I build it into the scaffold, now is fine. So does it all boil down to what, like price per kilowatt hour or like what's the final bottom line metric that you need to meet? Yeah, it's price per kilowatt hour. Like where is it currently with Um, solar and where does it need to be? So, so where solar is, I should mention, this is a huge breakthrough and a huge win for the solar field. Solar is actually now the cheapest form of energy. Through the, the DOE uh, Sunshot program, uh, the goal was to reduce the cost of solar energy to about six cents per kilowatt hour. And they reached that. And so that's wonderful. And so, you know, solar energy is actually now cheaper than conventional natural gas. And so that's a huge breakthrough, but that's not taking the sun's energy and turning into fuels, that's taking the sun's energy and turning it into electricity. And so we're nowhere close to that in artificial photosynthesis. I wouldn't even know how to give you price per kilowatt hour value. Well, the thing, once people figure stuff out, things tend to go on like an exponential curve towards the resolution. So I'm sure solar price per kilowatt hour 20 years ago was like astronomical and it probably falls like exponentially after a while. So you'll get there. I mean, I yes, I absolutely think that we... Um, we will get there. And, uh, you know, I'm excited about the the prospect of, of what this could mean. But 
Um, we're just not there yet. But I think with every win kind of in the solar field, we can kind of bounce off that and potentially make advantages in our field as well. Well, very good. Amanda, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? So they can go to my website, which is ajmorrisgroup.chem.bt.edu. Um, they can also follow me on Twitter at amori, and those are probably the best two channels. Okay. Well, great. Amanda, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.